drop. Hey everybody, my name is Christian Wynn, the director of Storyport, and you're listening to Storyport Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, which is a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March. At this stage, we have been postponed and reimagined for... September 23rd through 27th, 2020. But we're still here to tell you about all things Treefort. Today we're going to get into the intersection of sports and literature, which is an interesting conversation that's going to be led by our host, Larry Rosen. We have author Kim Cross, Jonathan Evison, and Samuel Berman, authors and sports enthusiasts of all sorts in here. Ball and not ball, but we just want to say we hope you're doing well out there um, and take care and be thoughtful and kind. And I heard today, by the way, 100 days without major sports. And this is, uh, you know, end of June here. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, as a sports fan myself, I am missing it, as I know all these guests are. So listen up and enjoy. Tell us, Mr. Rosen, what are we going to be in for today? What are we in store for? Well, we have assembled three writers who also either have a great interest in sports, a great lifetime of participating in sports, they write about sports, or all of the above. And I'll include me in that, too, because I'm a big sports guy. If you can see me right now, you'll see I'm wearing a Seattle Mariners hat, not only to keep the shine off my head, but because I like wearing a baseball cap. So we're going to talk about the intersection of sports and literature and sort of a symbiotic relationship between sports and literature. What can you take from sports and bring to literature? I guess that's a long way of saying we're not just going to talk about our favorite sports books, but we're hoping to get that in there, too, at the end. Right on. And with, this is kind of uh, maybe, gosh, it's a kind of a mashup of an event we're going to have at Story for, for It, which is the, basically the intersection of sports and literature and um, what we call bar fights on this podcast, which we usually hold in a place called our, our one of our favorite bars in, in Boise called the 10th Street Station. But bars are not open right now, as many of you know. And by the way, we really hope you're doing well, sheltering in place, being safe. Yeah, Idaho's kind of coming back to life, but uh, you know, it's dangerous, scary. So Larry, tell us who's going to be on this podcast with you today, sir. Well, Christian, we've assembled a crack team of sports enthusiasts and writing enthusiasts. I'll just give you their professional bona fides. Uh, We have with us today, Kim Cross, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, What Stands in a Storm. She has published an outside bicycling bike, ESPN.com, and has appeared twice in Best American Sports Writing. She is a national champion water skier, which I'm not sure if you knew. She coaches the high school mountain biking team, and that's up in Boise, right? That is. Yes. And uh, she's played 10 sports, one that includes a ball, and I'm dying to know what that one ball sport was. All right. Well, that sounds pretty cool. That's one. Uh, Then we will have Jonathan Evison, New York Times bestselling author of the following books, all about Lulu, West of Here, my personal favorite, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, 
and lawn boy, Sherman Alexie called him the most honest white man alive. I'm not sure if that can be true because I think our third guest, Sam Berman, a young fiction writer from Boise, Idaho, has some big problems with the documentary, The Last Dance, is actually the most honest white man alive. <laughs> well, we give a battle today. We'll all be on there. So I'm not in the running for that. I am far from the most honest white man. I'm not even sure I'm white. Are Jews white? I don't know. <laughs> Sam, uh, what I wanted to do to start, first of all, I, you know, I gave everyone's bio, but but Kim's bio includes, it demonstrates a life of participating in and writing about sports. No one else has really does, but I know because I know you guys pretty well, and I know uh, all of us have pretty strong feelings about sports and about writing, and we're going to find the intersection in them. But so let's start by giving sort of, I know this is very, pretty abstract, but your background in sports. Bio included background in literature and writing, but not in sports. Why don't we start with you, Sam? Uh, honestly... In my grown, I mean, kind of out of the Pee Wee League, it's always been as a fan for me. Both of my younger brothers are like high-level college baseball players. So, I mean, more so I identify with that part of it even more than like probably like playing sports at all. It's like going to high school games. I never went to a high school game when I was in high school. And then as soon as I was out of high school, I went to three games a week kind of thing. So it would be like way more of that, I would say, like in terms of like actual on-the-field participation. I was uh, – like you, uh, the chosen people everywhere but on the field, sort of. So, not great. Not great. That was inside baseball. Johnny, how about you? Well, I, I've always, I mean, just as, a, as an artist, I've always, I've always approached my work, you know, like an athlete. Because I grew up a jock until I was about 13, 14, and I found punk rock. And so, like, in terms of, like, preparation and uh, uh, just game planning, like, I really game plan for my work week. Like, I write on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The rest of the week, I'm really preparing like a football player, just making sure I'm ready to hit the ground running on Sunday when the whistle – so just just all of it. Just the, just the sort of like, uh, I, you know, I don't deal with this idea of inspiration. I just power through. I do the work. If it's raining, you still got to run your stairs, et cetera. And um, I never really uh, – I, I counted this morning because I knew we were doing this podcast, and in every book I think I have sports. Like in basketball, they, they play uh, – the twins are playing uh, pickup basketball down at Venice Beach, and uh, in, in west of here, Craig plays prep basketball. In uh, revised fundamentals of caregiving, the, there's the whole men's fat men's softball experience. In uh, lawn boy, it's more uh, uh, fantasy football references and things like that. And then, uh, well, and there's football a, and Legends of the North Cascades, and in basketball again in Small World. So it's always it's such a part of the American consciousness. I can't write about America without. Or somewhere and there's a there's a seahawk in lawn boy isn't there yeah well there's a reference to a, a, a defensive act, but some people will think it's richard sherman but it, it isn't there's a great rant of bruce arians though so kim you come at it as sort of the sports queen among us but also you come at sports very and very clearly in all the emails leading up to it a different point of view than what we're talking about when we talk about football baseball basketball Right. So it, it's funny because, you know, first of all, I've never thought of myself as a sports writer um, and it didn't occur to me until, I don't know, 20 years into my professional career that I, I happen to be an athlete and I happen to know a lot about sports and fishing and, and that those areas of expertise could be leveraged into kind of a writing niche. So um, I guess my, my background is I grew up um, competing in, I've competed in 10 different sports, but um, probably the, the, the one I'm best at, I was a competitive water skier for 13 years. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, I know most people are like, that's a sport. Actually, it is. It's, well, why I went to my college. I was on a, um, a collegiate water ski team, and I was a individual. Wow, you're serious? There's water skiing scholarships and water? I, I had no idea. Yeah, Neither. there are. Can you run us through what water skiing competition at the collegiate level looks like? Um, sure. So in a nutshell, um, <laughs> usually it involves first going out to a Mexican restaurant and having a lot of margaritas. No. Um, I like the sport. There's a there's the three events in traditional water skiing slalom tricks and jump slalom is a, a slalom course the boat goes through you go around six buoys rope gets shorter um, jumps is you um, you fly off a five foot ramp you go as far as you can and tricks you have 20 seconds to do um, as many tricks of um, different point values as possible so I did all of those that is crazy can I ask you something what is how is competitive water skiing a team sport in college it is. In college and at the international level, it is. But and in college, became kind of like that because a lot of the best individual competitors came to the U.S. because we had a, a competitive league, I guess. But now it seems like you've morphed more into a cyclist now. Yep, yep. So I, I kind of retired at like 23. I I just done it my whole life, and um, and I got into two adventure racing, and then that got me into mountain biking, and now I um, my life revolves around the mountain bike. And you also are, are sort of the odd woman out on this panel, too, that you write nonfiction. Yep. And everyone else is primarily a fiction writer. Me and, well, I guess me. Okay, I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I, I have a newspaper column, but I have never considered myself a journalist. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let me ask all of you this. I was doing some research. It's amazing because I thought, oh, sports and literature. The first time I Googled it, I got nothing. I'm like, well, that's weird. But I was Googling the wrong stuff. I don't know how I, I think I, no, I think I was Googling sports and writing and I got nothing. Then I did sports and literature and there's high school classes in this. There's college classes in this. There's a display at a museum in Austin for this. But the, but the most interesting thing I learned was that the first sports and literature intersection was actually hunting and fishing. British. British. Yeah. Um, yeah. That figures. So I was trying to put my head around, well, how is hunting and fishing a sport? And what I came to is kind of what you were alluding to earlier, Johnny, that you, you kind of jumped the gun a little bit. I wanted to get to that, the sort of takeaways that you can uh, apply to writing. Because maybe we're talking more about writing than literature. We'll get to the literature part later. But let's start with that then. Let's talk about the takeaways. You know, it's a two-way street, but let's go one way first. How has being a sports fan or a sports person benefited you as a writer? What, are the, what can you apply? Well, I, right off the bat for me is I'm a huge Pete Carroll fan. I love the Seattle Seahawks. And I've been a casual fan for years of the Seahawks, but I love his ethos. I love what he teaches his players to play for each other. I love his, uh, like, I, I love his always compete. Uh, motto. I, I just love the organization he runs, and I love how they this this idea of winning forever and preparation, preparation, preparation. That's been a constant inspiration to me. I look at Russ Wilson and his uh, you know his no time to sleep uh, attitude, and and I'm the same way. I, I don't. I just I work my butt off, and that's constantly an inspiration to me because all the guys, the veteran players that come play for Pete and come play for this organization, they're like, this is like nowhere else. I don't want to be anywhere else. Every other football team is different. It's the culture. Uh, so I, I find that inspiring to me. I, I find it, you know, this uh, playing with a chip on your shoulder because I'm kind of outside the academic realm, which is so prevalent in, in the literary market. And, and, you know, I got a little chip on my shoulder because of it. And I have to, I have to work a little harder sometimes for things. And for example for me, Kim, when he was talking just now about preparation and, and 
I, I've seen, you know, Johnny goes on Facebook and, and posts pictures of these elaborate charts that he makes with multicolored pens. And they do kind of look like a game plan that a football coach would come up with. Since you have more of a background in individual sports, what does your preparation look like for writing versus participating in sports? And is there overlap? Oh, that's a great question. So um, until we started talking for this, this panel, I, I thought I was the only one who approached writing the way um, I approach sports, which is that I think, you know, in any sport, especially in skill sports, you have to, you have to practice the skill. And you do a lot of repetition of certain drills and movements that you might not do in a game, but that you would then put together into a more complex move that you would you know, put into competition. And so for me, that translates to using a, a notebook like a sketchbook and just uh, doing a lot of writing that practices the skills that I use in my um, nonfiction, but, mm-hmm. but doing it for things that are, are just for me. So, you know, I, I try to, on a daily basis, spend 15 minutes at least uh, writing a scene or recording dialogue or sketching something really visual in, in an image that would, would start a scene. And um, I, I didn't really know a lot of other people who, who did this until I started meeting other writers, I guess, and talking about it. But I think that that commitment to, to developing the skills that you then apply, for me, that's, that's how it translates. Yeah, you're breaking down the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Hey, Kim, don't I you do feel like it. it's a huge advantage? Doesn't it feel like it's a huge advantage uh, next to this sort of uh, precious artistic approach where I'm just not feeling it today, you know, I'm not inspired. I mean, just this like prepare, work, work, do the work, and eventually you'll get through. I mean, I feel like it's a huge advantage. I mean, I have so many writer friends that are just so precious. They're like, uh, you know, uh, oh, gosh, my novel's being really fussy right now. I have to put it in a drawer for three months. And it's like, shit, man, I'm going to write 200 pages in the next three months. You just, you know, work, power through. <laughs> I totally agree. And, you know, what? one thing I liken it to is if you're training for a marathon, you don't go out and do um, and, and, and crush it and do speed work every day. You've got to put in base miles. And you have to kind of just – put in the, the, those five mile slogs that don't feel like much and, and build up to what you're getting to. And that's true if it's raining, if it's sleeting, you just got to go out there and keep doing it. And I do think that there are a lot of days as a writer that feel like, you know what, I just don't, <laughs> I don't feel like doing this, but you got to sit down and, and, you know, I think of them as, as ass in, in chair hours that you, you have to, you have to get through those days and the perseverance that gets you through, you know, as, as an athlete, I think translates as, as a writer. And when you're done, I, I'm trying to, I'm restarting trying to work on a novel. I haven't done a long time. And the other night I sat down and I wrote a thousand words. I'm trying to write a thousand words a day. And I got to done and I thought, well, these words suck. I'm not keeping any of them, but at least I got the reps. I sat down. It's Exactly. It's never wasted. And I like what Kim just said about the challenge. That's another thing that kind of plays back into Pete Carroll because he frustrates a lot of fans because he likes to win a certain way. It's not enough for him to win. He likes to exhaust the other guy and then just win at the last minute, which is just totally frustrating from a fan standpoint. But I love this idea that he looks at everything as a challenge, every, every, every bit of adversity. And he tries to, he, he drafts players by their grit more than their, you know, more than their measurables, like athletically, like he, he's looking for, he looks for people that have had adversity in their life that are going to know what it's like to, 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 to rise to the occasion. And like, I, I don't know for me, it's like, 
I'm juggling with a novel right now that's got 28 points of view, and it's like I've probably written 280,000 words on this thing. And right now, of the key, words I'm keeping, is probably 150. So, you know, do the math. I've dropped like 130,000 words out of this thing. But the work is never wasted. But, like, I, the more confusing, the more of a challenge it gets, the more I rise to the occasion. Like, I don't, I don't get discouraged by it. I get, I get excited about it because I want to play in a high-stakes game. I don't want to phone it in. I mean, I could write Lawn Boy for every novel, uh, like a sort of personable – relatable first person narrative. I could write 20 of those in, in, in about five months each, but like I, I keep wanting to do stuff that just pushes me, forces me to develop new tools and stuff. And I, I see this philosophy more. I see this a lot in athletes, especially, you know, like I said, in certain organizations. <laughs> Let's get Sam in here. Sam, I would honestly just echo most of the stuff, both of they said, both Kim and Johnny said so far, which is, I'm like Johnny and I hit the ground running. I'm not precious about it. I work a day job all day. I'm writing down little notes and stuff. So by the time I sit down, I'm two pages in before my fingers have hit the keyboard. I'm that like hung, I already know exactly, like literally try different machinations of sentences in my head. Like that's how hungry you kind of already use the metaphor again to like get on the field that way. And I, and like Johnny and Kim, they're, it's a superpower when you're actually doing the work. I also know a ton of people who are talented writers who write once a week or something for a little bit. And it's, no, I, I have empathy for them. It, it's a superpower when you're actually reading every day and practicing writing every day and like living with your head in that. And then lastly, how I bring sports into it, and I didn't really hear anyone totally mention this. When I read something I mean, it's a misnomer to call them my peers, but when I read stuff in magazines and places like that, I'm like, it's not competitive in the way that like I'm, there's any extra weight on it. But like, if I read something better than I can do, it makes me want to just go out and do my next thing even better. It really is sort of like this sort of side to side. It juices me up to like. That, yeah, that's, that. that's interesting because I was a mediocre high school and junior college pitcher. And if I went to a big league game, I'd see a guy warming up and go, well, clearly I could never do that. You know, I can't throw 90 miles an hour. I can throw 75. But I haven't had that experience reading something, really, you know, where I read something, like, oh, my God, this is just off the charts. I could never do that. So you're right. It's it maybe, and I actually just wrote down competitive because listening to Kim and Johnny talk, I thought, well, they, they are bringing a little bit of competitive juices to this, too. I mean, it's delusional. I feel the same way. I echo what Sam said. When I read something, I don't care if it's in the box hub. I read something. It just makes me want to write. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I think uh, totally. self-confidence is really important. Now, I know, I mean, I'm full of self-loathing. Larry, you, you, you know, Sam, you guys know me. I'm full of self-loathing. I hate myself, but I don't lack in confidence. And I think Kim would echo this as an athlete. You an cannot afford not to be confident. You have to be in a state of equipoise when you're playing a sport, you know, at a high level. You have to be confident. If you're having a moment of crisis, you know, between the lines, you're in trouble. And so uh, – I always feel like, I mean, I, I always bring that juice to the game. Like, I love to do this. This is what I want to do. I feel like I can do anything. I, do I fall flat on my face a lot of the time? Yeah, whole novels. But you know what I mean? You've got to have that competitive juice. And it's not that you're competing with the other guy. It's that you're competing, you know, you're competing with yourself just to be the best you can. And the other guy's just, you know, uh, the, other, the other artists are just setting the bar for you or something. You know? Johnny, it's a magic trick. When you're like midway through a book and you're actually on a tear in a paragraph, just doing exactly what you want to do 
in that second, you really are convinced you are writing this better than any other person could write this. It's like a little magic trick you play on yourself for a second. There is sort of like fake confidence or whatever you would call it. But just for that moment, you're like, I am absolutely killing this. No one can, like Yeah, really- or at least my best me. You know, I mean, I'm not necessarily going, God, this is better than Shakespeare. But I, I mean, I know when I'm feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm being my best me, it, but I don't feel like I have a ceiling. You know what I mean? That's the other thing is this idea of uh, I just feel like I'm growing. And this is why I always want to challenge myself. And again, I'll bring it back to a Seahawk metaphor. Russell Wilson, they call the guy a game manager the first couple of years of his career because he plays in a defense heavy system where they run the ball a lot. But every year I watch that guy work and get better and better. They said, oh, well, he, he flushes out of the pocket too soon he's 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 not a, a traditional uh, pocket quarterback he's 5'11 he's too small and and then he shatters the record book in the in the last half of 2015 because they have no running game and and the guy breaks virtually every he throws like 29 touchdowns and one interception and it, it, i mean it's this idea that i always feel like i'm improving and if i don't feel like i'm improving then i'm done you know i mean i feel bad for athletes in the sense that i look at the athletes that play at the highest level and I'm just getting started here. I'm 51. These guys, if they're already in the booth 10, 15 years if they had a Hall of Fame career. Yeah. I feel like we're so lucky. Like I've even sometimes I go to book groups that tells you a little bit about my audience, but they think I'm a young guy. You know what I mean? It's like all blue hairs out there. I do these library events. There'd be like 70 old ladies there. God love them. That's who reads fiction. But like to them, they, they think I'm a young guy. I energize them. And I'm thinking, God, if I was a Hall of Fame football player, I would have retired 15 years ago. We're we're older than the coaches now. Johnny, actually, the subtext of what you've been saying is interesting to me because what you're also talking about is being inspired by athletes. So for everyone, like who, I think we know that Russell Wilson inspires Johnny and we know why, but is it an odd case then of an athlete inspiring you to do your own work that isn't necessarily athletics? That might be harder for you, Kim, because you are still participating in high level athletics, but who inspires you to work, to, to write? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. What athlete inspires me to write? That's a tough one. But if, you know, when you just said what athlete inspires you, my, my first thought was uh, Bo Jackson. So I didn't really grow up a, a fan of Bo Jackson, but um, I got to uh, interact with him on a bike because after, so I wrote a book about the um, 2011 tornado outbreak that devastated Alabama after this, Bo Jackson, who is from Alabama, lives in Chicago, wanted to raise money for the state. Hold on, though. What? He's Auburn. You're Alabama. This oh, is- yeah. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. All right. Yeah. Uh, but, but Bo um, created a, a bike ride through Alabama to raise money for tornado relief. And he invited all of these, all of his, like, you know, fancy, famous athlete friends, like uh, Ken Griffey Jr., Peekaboo Street, Lance Armstrong. They're kind of the... the, the core group. Um, Al Joyner was there the first year. Um, gosh, uh, the Boz came one year. Anyway, um, he inspired me because he got these people together and they got on bikes and they, they put themselves in a situation where, um, you know, you take world-class football players football and baseball players. players, you put them on a bike and they're, they're better than everyone else on a bike. In fact, worse than a lot of average people. And I really kind of admired that they were willing to kind of do that, to, to really, you know, get on a bike and suck in front of other people. And so anyway, that, that's what came to mind. I, I thought that was a, a really cool thing to do. 
I guess, yeah. I mean, because I guess what we're talking about is, is the, the benefits of fandom here. Because yeah. we have talked about the benefits of participating, but the benefits of fandom. And I'm going to leave with you, Sam, because you described your, your relationship with, with sports as fandom. Yeah. So who, how would being a fan inform your work or inspire your work? Oh, I do, I do. I use just in my own writing so much of it. I mean, it's funny when you said what athletes inspire you. It's like whenever I'm thinking about stories and like Johnny, they just find their way into, I feel like any, honestly, most American writers from, you know, the entire escape of all different cultures, sports does find its way in. I'm looking at the guy at the end of the bench. I'm thinking about the guy giving out popcorn in the stands, like literally everyone but LeBron James when I'm thinking about stories that way. I, I like, it's such a fun, and then also the expectations of athletes. I always think I get inspired by that. I think that's super funny with any celebrity, but especially athletes as well. Like Derek Rose was someone I always found so fascinating because he was like this kid at that time that didn't go to college reportedly, like faked his essay. Right. And then he's at a, two-story penthouse in Trump Tower, like living it up in Chicago. Doing and it's a little uh, talking heads. How did I get here kind of thing? Like, I love yeah. thinking about that. Just how crazy, like, how upturned life gets so quickly in that world has always been fascinating to me. And then from the periphery, I've always found that so fascinating. But you, and, you know, and I, I think you touch on something really interesting, that fascination with their lives. Because really the genesis of how we thought of doing this panel uh, was that Johnny and I, when we first met, we found out we had something in common that we had never heard anyone else do. When we were little kids, each of us used to make up baseball players and make, I would type them, he would write his, but just we'd write their, their stats, you know, the rookie year, second year, third year, all the way down the line. And I realized when we were talking about that, that, that was the first experience I had in making up characters. And when you look at these athletes as a fan, they're characters. You know, you learn about how to tell a story by watching their story. I don't know if it would apply as much to you, Kim, because you do nonfiction, you do more reporting. But have, have you guys had that same experience where you realize when you're watching athletes, it's their story that we're really interested in? Well, that, that's the story of a game. That's what I love about it. You know what I mean? It's a drama, and I don't know how it's going to end. <clears throat> I can't say that for two out of three Hollywood movies. By the end of the first act, I've already – I mean, I know the formula. I know Aristotelian drama enough to, to, to figure out probably what's going to happen at the end. <clears throat> and with a game, you just don't necessarily. Uh, you know, it's the drama of the game. It's a story that I watch every Sunday, and I have to fight for that time. I have three kids. I used to be a baseball fan first and foremost, but – I don't have 162, you know, how many hours is that? 580 hours. I don't, I don't have it anymore. So I, 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 I came over to football about 15 years ago in a big way. And man, I look that Sunday, that, that drama that happens on Sunday, that story and, and all the little ancillary characters inside that story, you know, Doug Baldwin, the undrafted free agent, undersized receiver, or, you know, uh, a guy who's overcome five suspensions, a guy whose dad was killed in a house fire. I mean, all these athletes have these stories. And what I explain to people why I need to be a sports fan, I don't know if this plays, I think this plays into the overall theme here. The way I explain fandom is, is that I, in my life, I'm trying to control everything. I'm, I got three kids I'm trying to raise. I'm trying to control my career, you know, and my livelihood. I'm trying to pay two mortgages. I'm trying to do everything I do is somehow I'm trying to control it. But like, 
Sunday for three hours, I care and am as deeply invested in that as, as most of the other stuff in my life, but I have no control over it. And that is so liberating. I need that. You know what I mean? I need that experience of being a fan. I need to care deeply about something that I can't control. So and, mean, and the fact is a lot of the stuff I'm trying to control, I can't control either, but that's not how I perceive it. You're always trying to control, you know, the only so way you can try to control being a fan is just cheer really loud. Yeah. So you're telling me that if the Seahawks score and you happen to be holding a beer in your left hand, you don't make sure you're always holding a beer in your left hand for the rest of that game. No, I was never, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of habits if they work, but I've never been one of those superstitious, like, rally hat don't change your jock strap guys at all i don't you know i, I mean i think work makes you lucky i mean I, I i totally believe in luck but i think hard work i mean i think you know i think michael jordan made a lot of lucky shots is what i guess what i'm saying i mean i think you but i never i never i never gave in for just sheer like oh, I'm mystical horrible. like you know i'm not changing my underwear because we're in a winning streak um, unless there's some provable thing about you know, dirty underwear that's helping my performance, less chafing or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. So I wanted to jump in and say something about that Johnny just said a while back, which was that um, a game is the ultimate story. And from a nonfiction standpoint, I think one of the challenges of nonfiction is you can't just make up a character in a story. You have got to find it. And often they're really complicated and there is no clear beginning and clear end, but it, you know, it is so clear in sports. It's the ultimate, the, you know, the protagonist is obvious. There is an obvious antagonist, even if it's themselves in their own head. They have clear conflict. They're, you know, what they want is is very clear. And there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that is, um, that's so wonderful for a nonfiction writer because you um, you don't always easily find that in, in other realms. But sports has it all. It's a story. It's a drama. And it really yeah. has Structure is built in largely. It, it, I mean, you're right. I mean, three acts, four quarters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and within the parameters of that, like there is this thing almost probably singular to sports now where that clock ticking down is the same for both teams. They are both watching that time tick away. It's this very fair thing. Like, like Johnny, I, I would kind of word it. It's the one time in the week when I'm doing that, that I really can turn off my brain in a very particular way. I think he was speaking to like all the other sh shit you have going on. I right definitely here. get that in my brain for sure. When it, there's six minutes left, there's six minutes for you watching for the jazz, for the Cavaliers, the entire, it's all squared for just that, whatever, 10 minutes it takes to do that six minutes, whatever, you know, give you that. That is about as close as we get to like pop culture Nirvana. Now there's nothing really left like that. The last four minutes of a Marvel movie, I, I don't know what you'd compare it to. It's, it's, it's monoculture and it's fair. We, we don't have any of that left, really. And you're, you're right, because you know what's awesome about watching sports, at least for me, is that is, if I'm watching, sorry, Johnny, a 49ers game, that is the three hours of the week that I can scream at the TV and act like an idiot and not care if I'm being a jerk. I'm just letting it all hang out. And, and see, I would also say, don't apologize. See, I love my rivals. I love them. I mean, like when I'm ragging on Bruce Arians and Lawn Boy, I miss him. I wish he was still in the, NF the NFC West. Yeah, I miss him because I love to hate him. I love to hate the Niners. I don't. I feel no. I feel no ill feelings towards the Niners. I mean, whether or not I think their fans can be obnoxious, I know they think we're obnoxious. But I love them because I need them. It's like that, you know. It's like. Batman needs Joker, kind of, you know, <laughs> you need your villain. You were definitely one of the few 12s to welcome the Niners back this year. You know, I just kept saying, you guys missed us, right? 
And you were the only one. Yes, we missed you. Thank you. Oh, completely. It's such a great rivalry. I mean, I, just like when my own writing or my own work, I, I want to play in a, a high-stakes game. I mean, once in a while, it's fun to watch the Seahawks blow somebody out. But one of the reasons I love being a fan is they usually don't. The game's usually within seven points because Pete Carroll refuses to win blowouts. <laughs> he wants it to hurt for the other guy or something. He just wants to, he just wants to grit it out at the end, man. This is a little bit of a left turn, but I think it's, it's kind of included. How much do you think you all have learned about struggles and adversity, overcoming adversity through watching and participating in sports? Oh God, everything. <laughs> I feel like everything. I, I feel like the, the most valuable lessons I've learned in my life have been through sports. And, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, the most valuable thing I learned is how to fail and how to get back up and keep trying and failing um, over and over and over again. I was telling you earlier, I just did this, um, a stunt story for outside about, you know, 100 wheelies a day for 30 days, 3,000 wheelies. Well, I had to, chance to go back and think about my, my earlier career as a water skier, and um, I failed. I calculated, I did the math, I failed 6,500 times to learn a backflip on a trick ski before my first success and that's uh, that's not mastering it then then there was a few more thousand times and you know to keep believing in yourself after six thousand failures i mean there's something to be said for that and having to do it in in public and you know with a team with others i just think that that's one of the most wonderful things that you know you, you can learn as a young person do you think watch bravo to that because you just touched on a huge thing i think which is failure do you know what I mean? Failure has so much to do with both things. I mean, I mean, baseball being like the ultimate because hitting a baseball, they, 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 you know, the conventional wisdom that hitting a baseball at 102 miles an hour is the hardest thing to do or whatever, just because of the physics and your best hitter is failing 65% of the time. And that guy's going to be in the hall of fame. I, I, I'll, Larry, I'll, I'll zig on your zag real quick. I personally, and I definitely grew up more jaded about this, certainly, but I just, I used to kind of like guffaw at people that would like, like I had friends that were on the football team that would lose and I'd see them hanging their heads and I'm like, dude, what are you, like, come on. I, I, I would like honestly make fun of them. Like I, I would like rap about it. And then, uh, and then when I lived in Chicago, I, maybe this kind of, is, it, it humbled me in this way of like, when the Bears had a good game, the UPS driver that whole week, felt good he yeah. felt better like it actually did like i the guy at the 7-eleven i'd get my coffee from would go how about that cat that whole it, that really i kind of thought that was like bullshit until i lived in like a rust belt i mean obviously a more met, metro, more of a metropolis but it, the bears mean as much to that city as those guys as mother-in-laws and like you know it's like it's when they do well they feel better and it taught me that for sure there can be stuff in the culture that maybe on its face is not the most impactful to your day to day, but in its entirety actually does affect a large part of life in a way that like be like, Oh, that does matter a lot more than I probably thought it did for a long time when it didn't directly affect me. And I, I think that is an important thing for every, I mean, I think honestly, like post nine 11 stuff, like national temperature, even city temperature, that kind of thing. Like, 
that affects a lot of stuff, the way everyone around you is feeling at one particular time. I think yeah, it's, like it's a, a great connector, man. You don't know who the guy you're high-fiving next to you if you're at the ballpark is, but that person, that person's your brother or sister right in that moment. You know what I mean? It, it, it really, that swelling of the crowd when something good happens and you're practically, I mean, I don't know what this is going to look like in the post-hugging, high-fiving era, but you know what I mean? That feeling like, I, you don't know that guy from Adam next to you, but like, in that moment, it, it, I don't know. It's a great connector. Agreed, agreed. And you have nothing, maybe in every other facet of your life, you have nothing in common with this guy. If you were to meet him at a bar, you might end up hating this guy if you talk to him for 10 minutes. But you were both happy about that kickoff return is like a real thing, not to really be understated, I don't think. It's an there's important of, thing. Yeah, there's a lot of value to that. But as far as overcoming adversity, don't you feel like every every sports story is about overcoming adversity? Every Definitely football. I mean, I think as uh, uh, the professional sports I follow, literally almost every NFL football story is just, I don't know, man. There's just some brutal stories. I mean, there's like – there's like five different players in the NFL whose whose parents have died in a house fire who are homeless, who are, I mean, they're just so much of that. Yeah, and they make sure you know it when you – did you watch the draft this year? Every player you – know, I don't think polo so much, but, you know. But, yeah, not so much in polo. The NBA definitely. No, the draft this year, the NFL draft, the Zoom draft, they have the bullet points, you know, like, oh, gained 1,500 yards senior year. And there was always, you know, sister killed in a house fire. You know, parents split when he was three years old. There is a ton of that. I think the other one, the one I like more that there's less and less of, but definitely in the retrospectives is more, is I think the Buckner thing of like how one bounce can define a whole. I do like that story more, you know, especially in some of that stuff. Like if that one thing goes different, you're remembered completely differently. And I think I'm more attracted to that. I know what you're talking about, Larry. Buckner had 2,850 hits. Yeah, that guy was 150 hits from the 3,000 hit club, and he's just remembered for one ground ball that went through his legs. I mean, I yeah. wonder if he'd have played one more year and hit 3,000, if that might have eased that a little bit. Well, Once you hit that 3,000 plateau, you know, maybe. It doesn't – he would have – Johnny, if that doesn't happen, he's remembered as the 29th best baseball player yeah. of the modern era. But, you know – remembered as the guy with the worst error of all time. Yeah, but you know what's funny about that is just the fact that he was – I'm sorry, Kim, this is the boring part. <laughs> just the fact that he was out there playing in that game was heroic. If you remember, he was wearing these crazy high tops because he could barely walk. But he was, a, he was a warrior, so he was out there, and the ball goes through his legs, and now he's, you know, Buckner. Um, overcoming adversity in individual sports, non-ball sports. Kim, go. Oh, gosh. Um, it's, it's – especially in individual sports – it's you against you in your head. And I think that that is like the, the thing that we all struggle with in, in you know, career and life and everything. It's, it's our greatest enemy is, is often our own head. And so that's what, I, that's what it taught me. Um, you know, the confidence thing, uh, who was talking earlier about confidence? I think it was Johnny. Me. It's so true. You, um, you cannot do what you're capable of if you don't have confidence as a writer or an athlete, even if you have done the training, you've done the work. If you don't have that, that, that mojo inside you that says, I can do this. I can rock this. Um, it's not going to happen. And psyching yourself up to get into that place is um, I think it's kind of can be a similar process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You said it, trust the work. You know, that's the, that's why you're doing it. You trust the work. 
so that it's going to happen for you and you can be in that state of equipoise and you don't have to think about it. It's like in math where, you know, you're struggling through algebraic equations in sixth grade and you're like, I don't even understand this. And then you get to geometry and then it's like, ah, now I get it because I've already internalized all these formulas and rules and stuff like that. But now I'm seeing the bigger picture and I, I just had to do all that work to get there. You know, you just trust I, I the work. With the endurance stuff specifically, I, I don't follow it, but every time I read it, like a Guardian article about a guy who sailed around the world three times without ever getting off the boat, and he just looks like shit, and his hair is, you know, his beard and everything, that's about as close as you get to the, you know, throw Hemingway, man against the sea, man against nature. You almost have, you create, and when these rock climbers get stranded, I remember reading about, like, uh, a couple of years ago, this rock climbing expedition that was sponsored by like Rolex or something. And they had the best climbers in the world and they all hated each other the entire time. And then these two people got stuck on a mountain in a storm. And these guys without ropes free soloed this insane peak and brought these two people down. These two of the best free climbers in the world. And the guy passed away, unfortunately, and the girl lost in the ear. But it was like, this is about as close as we get with, without war. This is man versus nature now. These are wall. This is the new Walden is this guy ran across the country 11 times kind of thing that that Forrest Gumpian sort of like, well, that's strange. I would like to know what else is going on in that guy's life that for three years he wanted to run back and forth between San Francisco and New York. But it's super fascinating shit. No doubt. Well, that's like, I'm sure. How, did you all see that free solo movie? Oh, yeah. So yeah. I saw that movie and I thought that poor girl. Worst boyfriend. That is exactly what I thought. How much more, int- I love the climbing scenes. How intricate, what a peculiar gentleman that guy is. Or like how, I also thought how tough to live with. Almost like living with a writer. He can be very moody, it seemed like. <laughs> Let's turn it on its head a little bit. We were talking, we've talked to up to now sort of how sports has informed us as writers, how it's influenced us as writers. And almost we've sort of hinted at it. It makes us a little different than maybe a writer who isn't engaged with sports. What do you think as sports participants and fans for us, do you think we have a different attitude toward them than non-writers? Does being a writer inform your relationship with sports? Well, I got to see. Yeah. I mean, I got to think so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think intuitively every fan thinks of it as a story and a drama, but probably not as uh, overtly as like somebody who, Writes drama. That's where I'm coming. I mean, yeah, absolutely. When I when I watched, yeah, I I I had the advantage of I used to work for ESPN uh, for the NBA.com site, and we did chats, and I was the guy typing in the background on the chats. So I got to hear all these guys' stories, and it was so fascinating. Every single story was fascinating. Every single story was surprising. I'm not sure if I would have noticed that had I not already been a type of person who's looking for stories. But I don't know, at least speaking for myself, that's the reason why I asked it. Because for me, I definitely think I have a different relationship with sports. Like I can't, I used to, and I feel stupid for this now, Johnny, but I used to have a problem with Sean Kemp because I thought he was a bad person. And I couldn't root for him because I thought he was a bad person just because his story didn't work for me. Well, his, well, he has several stories, you know well, what I mean? I mean, kind of the kid from Elk Art, Indiana is one thing, but like once he got success and he had like 22 maternity suits against right. him and... He hit some dark times, yeah. But like Sam, you had some problems with the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh yeah. As the Bulls fan growing up, I just I 
honestly, it's because I think his story is a little boring. I think his drive is like very, very impressive. And I think obviously the results speak for themselves, but like just in, you know, grew up here, went to cut. The most interesting thing about him was he was cut from the team his junior year of high school. Like you said, all of these guys have, it's just, I, and this is a product of probably becoming one of the best players so young. His life, he was like bubble boy life. And he's kind of a dick and he's kind of X and he's kind of Y, but like there are very fascinating in stories in sports if you just lift the rock like a little bit. Like, I mean, even Johnny was saying, even the ones that like, the crazy stories about some of these guys, and those are all fun. There's just as many where it's like the journeyman. It's just so much more interesting than the guy. Like sort of the LeBron conundrum. Like the most interesting thing about LeBron in his career is that like he hasn't made a big mistake or something like that. And other than that, he was sort of anointed the king at 16. And then his whole story has been the basketball story. And and that's less interesting to me than – your Rashid Wallace's of the world and you know that kind and even Alan Iverson and the or Stephon Marbury like you would rather make the Stephon Marbury movie about him going to China and like all of that stuff than you would the LeBron James movie if, if, <laughs> it would be the Michael Jordan movie is boring to me I saw it even when they added I can't resolve this about Jordan help me out this is what I can't resolve it's so easy to be graceful when you're good at something or you're successful or something or you have good will or good fortune it's so easy He's such a bitter, backbiting jerk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever watched this Hall of Fame speech? It's like the most ungrateful, you know, fucking throwing his, uh, you know, junior high basketball coach under that. I mean, it's like every, the guy was such a grudge holder. And I guess maybe that's part of his competitive edge. And maybe that's something we could explore at some point. It's like this, there's different types of competitive edges there's a guy that can be graceful and doesn't have to talk trash but there's a guy that needs to talk trash on the court there's a guy that can let the game do the talking how he motivates and sorry kim i keep saying guys because i'm just i'm picturing certain actual people here well kim i get curious in the in the distance sports but john real quick on that like what i will say is i think for the very best guys and muhammad ali would be the exception to the rule on this aren't don't you think especially like 90s Ford, aren't these guys kind of frozen in amber at the age they are when all of this starts? Like Michael Jordan presents as a 50-year-old, 16-year-old to me sometimes when he's talking. Do I have that wrong? That's where he's Bitter, angry, the whole thing. Yeah, right. In a way. Some guy. But then I listen to somebody like Doug Baldwin, uh, whose career I watched for eight years and and just literally watched the guy grow up in front of the camera. Just like looking – Doug Baldwin, who retired last year, versus Doug Baldwin's first year in the league. I mean, the, he grew into a man, and that I, I, I attribute that partially to the Seahawks culture too. I actually do. Kim, would you say I, I have been on a a little bit of a biking kick, uh, long distance biking? I I was a big fan a couple of years ago of that Icarus documentary, which I think is one of like the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. I. I kind of get a little bit of the Jordan thing whenever I would watch like Armstrong interview of like, is this guy just stuck at 20 years old and angry about still the guy who shot the gun off late in the 1996 tour de France? Like that's such a personal growth sport, but the most competitive people seem a little one track in like a very particular way to me. They're not good people. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that documentary, but I, I think I know what you mean. Where they um, they're, they're kind of in in a particular era, and they they 
are not breaking out of that in, in, in their personality. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I wanted to kind of go back to what uh, Larry originally asked, which was, does uh, the fact that we're writers change our relationship with sports, right? Was that? Very nice. Um, and and I, I do think it does a little bit in that uh, where the, the fan or the athlete who's not a writer is going to have a different emotional reaction when things go wrong. <laughs> but as writers, we know that um, that's actually the moment that makes a good story, right? So uh, I, I'm always really thankful to be a writer when things go, like I just had this, this cascade of, you know, very expensive house problems. And I'm like, you know what, at least it's good material, right? But I do think that um, as a fan, you're watching for, you want that athlete to succeed or you want that team to succeed. But as a writer, when they struggle or when they falter or when they make a mistake, that's where the story lies. And I think to me, I'm more interested in how that, that person, and this kind of goes back to Sam, what you were talking about, when, when that person, uh, it, it's easy to be gracious and, and a champion when you're winning and when things are going well, but when things don't go well, how does that person respond? And that's where I kind of, I'm fascinated in the pathos of that moment of when people respond badly or, or well. I think that that is, um, that's the moment that I'm kind of hanging on to, to see like, how do they deal with it? How does this character um, deal with this, um, things not going the way they want? And so anyway. Yeah, Russ Wilson versus Cam Newton. You know, oh. one of them comes up there in the press conference sulking, doesn't want to answer questions, complaining about a bad call. And the other one comes up there and says, this one's on me. I made some mistakes. I, I could have done better. You know, I mean, I love it when guys show their their, their leadership mm-hmm. right, or when and, guys and their character. And nothing shows it more than losing. That's, I mean, that's, I can't, I, we can, it's the second time I've come back to that thing that, that the losing, losing, it just has so much to do with it. I mean, in any competition, there's always going to be a loser. And that loser is going to be you like half the time, no matter how good you are, you know, or at least a third of the time. So that's sort of, um, before we start talking about books, that, that sort of leads me to what the last thing I want to talk about was that sports are a window into human nature. And, and we may see that more than other people do as writers. Maybe that's where I was going with that. Because you do, like Johnny said, you do get to see, okay, Cam Newton obviously isn't used to things not going well for him. You know, and he doesn't know what to do with that. And Russ Wilson knows what to do when things don't go well for him. It is. It's all, it's all really interesting. Okay. So I, I just got the sign from our boss that we need to think about wrapping it up. So I hope you've been thinking about this for 45 minutes because I want to talk about our, our favorite sports books. All right, Ben's going to hold up a book, and I'll tell you what it is, Johnny. What is it? Well, okay, so I have, I guess, mountaineering. Can we count that as a sport? Yeah. Okay, so I I can't, I haven't read all of the books. I can't say best in the world, but this is the book that was like a game changer for me. I was wondering if that was going to be a big book for you. Yeah, I remember, Into Thin Air. Yeah. it, I remember reading this book when I was in high school and I didn't even, um, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a writer, uh, but I didn't, I didn't even have the vocabulary for what kind of book this was, but the way he felt made me feel like I was on the mountain. I, uh, I was like, I, I don't know what that is, but I want to do that. And I felt so invested in the story, so present. And, um, in, and I mean, I think what I would call it now is just literary nonfiction. You know, it's, it's narrative. Does the fact that he was also climbing the mountain 
did that inform the way you approach sports journalism? I don't know. You know, I, I would prefer to not be in my stories, but I end up being in my stories more often than I, I would like to admit. Um, I think when it, but, but I do think that it's a better book because he was on the mountain. So it actually, I, I'll, I'll change my answer. As immersion journalism, it did make me want to do that. I didn't, I don't like being necessarily the subject of my story all the time. I prefer not to be, but um, it's, you know, some stories lend themselves to it, some don't. But I like that he was present, but it wasn't about him. But he was clear about his presence in the same way that, like, Mary Roach is present in her stories, although the stories are not about her. Yeah, but it seemed like... It's a spectacular book. I just want to sound in. I just got to say that that's one of the best pieces of nonfiction I've ever read. We, I did that as a read aloud with my wife when it came out, and that, that book is awesome. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I did, I did um, Into the Wild when I used to teach high school. I taught that to, I taught that to a bunch of upper middle class kids because I thought it would really resonate. And I wanted to, <laughs> was he a Sorry. hero or an idiot? And you'd be surprised how many of them like, no, he was a hero. Totally just said, screw you, mom and dad. And do my thing. The thing that's interesting about Into Thin Air is I feel like he was there, which lent in an air of authenticity, but I also felt at some point he almost felt like he was to blame. That he shared some blame in what happened, which gave the book a whole different feel to me. I think that book's fantastic. Right. And I, and I do think that that gave it another layer that um, made it better than if he was just the omniscient, invisible narrator. I think that that, that feeling of culpability, that survivor's guilt, um, gave it a, um, I don't know, it made it more, more poignant and vulnerable and, and, and real. And you see that this, the real stakes of these, you know, he's not just pointing his, his finger at people. He's saying, you know, I'm part of the problem. We're all part yeah, of the problem. He's struggling with it. But I'll <laughs> ask you, Johnny Evison, New York Times bestselling author, what's your favorite sports book? What are your two, fa best, two favorite sports I'm going to say two because one's, one's an insider from the insider's perspective and one's from the fan's perspective. So, like, from the fans' perspective, and the book is about so much more. It's about, you know, mental illness and alcoholism and everything else. But A Fan's Notes by Frederick Eggsley is one of my very favorite novels. And his, his relationship to the New York Giants and Gifford and, and those, those, those great Giants teams of the early 60s epitomizes how I feel on Sundays. And it, it plays into what I was saying about needing it so bad, needing that thing yeah. that I – so deeply invested in that. And just the way I just remember, you know, at the beginning of that book is so vivid for me. He's this alcoholic, uh, who's the, he's this alcoholic professor in this sort of Northeastern town. That's got such a bad reputation with his alcohol that he has to go to the next town over to watch the games. And he just stays there all day, you know, and he, and, and like before the game, he's like pacing the bar. I mean, I, I, I totally get that edgy, that I'm about to burst. I can't wait. I care so much yeah. about what happens here, but I have no control over it. Um, so that would be my book from the fans. note. just somebody reporting on how deeply connected to a team you can be. Well, yeah, that really that, resonated with me. It's sort and of the personalities because it was all about the personalities for him too. And then the insider one would be ball four by Jim Bouton. Cause I thought it was just so courageous. I mean, it got the guy basically kicked out of major league baseball. He broke the Cardinal buddy rule of like, you know, actual honest reportage about what goes on in locker rooms and, and womenizing and, 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 and a lot of the just like, you know, 
Let me ask you this. A lot of the, it was the first inside peak of what major, you know, the, the, the journalists don't get that peak when they come into the locker room. You there know, are things that are sacrosanct that, that, that the outsider does not know that the team knows. And for him to, that was just a fascinating expose, you know, as a lifelong baseball fan to hear it from the inside. And it was really courageous and he was not your atypical jock. You know what I mean? He was super philosophical. He was kind of like uh, the, the Colts quarterback. Andrew Luck, I like that guy. Big reader, big intellectual, kind of not your prototypical professional uh, football player, you know? How, how old were you when you read Ball Four? I read it twice. I think the first time I read it, I was probably you a kid or an 16, adult? 16 okay. and then the second time I read it, I was probably, I don't know, mid-30s. When, when Ball Four came out, it was scandalous. And, so, and, and a lot of people who considered themselves real baseball fans, like blackballed Jim Bouton and said, this is terrible. How could you do this? I read ball four when I was nine, maybe eight, nine, and loved it. It made me love baseball more. I thought it was so fantastic. That, that's actually on my list too. I love that book. Um, shoot, I was going to say something and I just got all carried away with ball four and I can't remember what it is now. <laughs> what are your books? Uh, ball four. It's weird that my books are baseball books because I used to be – I played baseball. I coached baseball. I was Mr. Baseball for the longest time. And in the last 10 years or so, I stopped following Major League Baseball. Uh, and my wife is really disturbed by this. She's like, I just don't get it. This is wrong. I still kind of follow the Mariners. But um, and I'll, if I walk by a, um, a baseball game, I'll stop and watch, especially high school, you know, college, minor leagues. But Ball Four is my favorite fan book. And my other favorite baseball book is a book called The Glory of Their Times. It was written in the 60s. The writer was Lawrence Ritter, and it's interviews with ballplayers from the turn of the century. And it's just, just it, it's a history book. It's really looking at American history through baseball. But I don't think it's at all intended to be that. So tell me your story. And it's like, you know, here's Smokey Joe Wood getting on a horse-drawn cart to play on the town team in 1890. And that's fascinating how different it was then and, and that these guys were still alive in the 60s to go tell their stories um so yeah those are my two i'd love to get sam's two but we got can i do a second one while we're waiting for sam yes so um my second one is a uh, young woman in the sea by glenn stout glenn you may know as the editor uh the series editor of best american sports writing yeah. and he's a friend of mine and this is a story i i, I never knew this but um uh, Trudy Etterly was the uh, the first woman to um, swim the English Channel, and she I want to say when she did it, there had only been like a handful, like maybe four or five men who had done it before them, before her. And I, I want to say she beat their time by like hours and hours. And she um, she failed the first time, and then she had to set out again. And um, I, I, I liked it because he he really did a lot of historical research, but made her come alive in to the extent that, you know, it's, you, you think, oh, he must have been able to interview her, which of course he wasn't. And to, to also make something where um, the main thing the person is seeing, the protagonist is seeing is water the whole time. To, to be able to bring that to life in a way without it getting um, old, it, it's the same kind of challenge, I think, that, um, uh, was it 100, 127 hours where the guy gets stuck in the game? Yeah, yeah. The same challenge where, like, how do you make a narrative where the protagonist doesn't move for the whole movie? I, I think that... Um, God, that's kind of my dream novel. <laughs> I wish I could write that novel every time where a guy just doesn't move. So, so, in a so, cave, Donnie, you've written that book halfway, I think, already. <laughs> 
Is it a lot so, of I, I that, you know how he handled that challenge of you know the, of making it come to life, even though like all she was able to see was it was like more of the same, another ten strokes, right? Is it inner dialogue? Um, there's inner dialogue, but he even did research where he he explains the color that she was able to see, the color of the water through her goggles, and um, and then there's you know of course flashbacks and and backstory and other things woven in. So it's just I I, I appreciate how hard that is to do in nonfiction, especially inner dialogue to get in the head of a character that yeah. you're not able to interview. It's really hard to do, and and the people who do it well, I I really admire that. Is that book pretty new? No, it's it's not. It's I want to say it's um it's seven or eight years old, but it's being made into a movie. So hopefully that we'll be seeing that soon. Gertrude Ederly, big crossword puzzle answer right there. Sam is back. Yeah, I'm Just here. In time to tell us his favorite sports book. The best sports book ever written, I still think, is probably the fight by Norman Mailer, like a book just about. You know, the Muhammad Ali fight, Rumble in the Jungle, is probably, like, the best sports book that way ever written. Uh, being a short fiction guy, a reader of many short fiction, I will say, I think that, I, I think Bullet to the Brain by Tobias Wolf is not a story about baseball, but I think the last page of that book is the best distillation of, like, the romance and charm of, like, like walking to right field. I mean, that's all the character does is walk out to play outfield. And that book, that's the last page of that short story might be my favorite sports book ever written in a very particular way. I think John Updike's The Slump is like a piece of microfiction that I think microfiction writers are still trying to emulate where it's a page, he's in the batter's box, he thinks about himself mowing the lawn. He thinks about all these things and you're back with it. And I think it like, is still like a less, if it came out today, it would still be, you know what I, it would still flow with all the new stuff that comes out. Um, honestly, I just think there's a reason, you know, Hemingway, Jack London, I think all these guys have written these short stories specifically about boxers in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. And I think that there's a reason for that. And I think it's something everyone's talked about, which is like, it's the in-ring tenacity. It's the tenacity of the sport. And then something we haven't really talked about, it's really with the scars you're left with when that's over. And I mean, there's a theory out there. This might be like kind of apocryphal, but there's a theory that like Hemingway had CTE from all his concussions or whatever. But if you read the battler, the battler now, that short story, it's like the language is very of its time. I won't get into why, but obviously like it's written a long time ago. And uh, it's like this guy has CTEs, a boxer that flies off the handle at the slightest drop of a hat. Like it's, you know, not hip in some ways, but like hipper to things that people still argue about today on ESPN. And like, I think the short story classics by some of those guys, specifically about boxing, there's not a- That's James Welch. There you go. Yeah. And then if you're looking for a really fun- Box about CT before CT, you can just see it in action. You just see how damaged the fighter is. Yeah, that's exactly the Hemingway thing, too. It's just like the guy can't, everything's 20 seconds slower than it should be, and then the anger comes, like, quick after. And I I think they're attracted to that. Obviously, you think about those writers, there's, like, a physicalness of boxers. They have to be just, like, fascinated with broken old, you know, prize fighter type dude. And I get that. 
So read all those stories, search them out. And then there's a book I love that came out probably seven or eight years ago. Called, hold I'm holding it up for all the listeners that aren't looking at this called yeah. Odd Man Out by Matt McCarthy. Um, very kind of cheeky name, obviously, eight, a play on eight men out. And it's the best book I've ever read about what a year in the minor leagues would really be like. Ooh, okay. You just like live in the dugout. You, you've probably heard of it at some point, Larry. You just, you live in the dugout with these guys. It's not too cute by half the way a lot of minor league baseball stories and books can be. I think it's a really fun book to read. It's not high literature, but it's like, you want to stay there. It's a, the book you wish was longer, which is a pretty rare thing for me yeah, to yeah, like, get to a book and say, man, I wish I was 200 pages longer. Could have been there all night. Awesome. Well, yeah, Matt McCarthy, Odd Man Out. Check it out. And we are out of time. I'd love to talk more about sports books. In fact, could talk about sports books for the balance of the evening. But I'm hearing from the man upstairs that we are out of time. God or Christian? Uh, well, sometimes well, he's in a hotel, so it's actually the guy in 608. That yeah, it's the guy in 608 at the hotel. Uh, I want to thank all of you, uh, Kim, Sam, and Johnny, for joining us today. This doesn't mean we're not going to do this in September in person, by the way. We're just warmed up now. we got more reps. Now we can do it. So thanks, everyone, and uh, we will catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. All right, everybody. Well, hey, that was our conversation about sports and literature and the intersection thereof. We want to thank all our guests today. We want to thank Eavesdrop Studios at E-A-S-E-D-R-O-P.com. That is ease-drop.com. I want to thank Tree Ford Music Fest. Um, you can find out all, about all things Tree Ford at treefortmusicfest.com. I want to thank Up is the Down is the for providing our great theme music and Hey, one day soon, we shall see you at the fest. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.